0: Uh, Thank you, Jamie, so much for that wonderful portrayal of Mary. I I, I really love that idea of Mary's thirst, really her desire to know more, to experience more of Jesus, that as a baby, uh, Jesus' physical needs were met by Mary. Uh, She quenched his physical thirst. But there came a time when she, she went to him, she went to him to have her uh, spiritual thirst quenched. And it's my prayer that, that we've come today, uh, like Mary, thirsty to know and to experience more of Jesus. To experience the, uh, the, the words we've, we've got around here, the words we're focusing in on in our Advent. To experience uh, hope and peace and love and joy. That God brings us through Christ. That comes through Christ's presence in our lives. But to truly experience Christ, to have our thirst quenched by Him, we need to know who He is. We need to know who He is that we might trust in Him. And that's the purpose of this uh, four-week Christmas sermon series. We're seeking to know more of Christ by answering that, that question. What child is this? Who is the Christ of Christmas? Who is Jesus? You want to see who He is historically, but maybe more importantly, uh, who He is or who He should be in our lives today. That we might grow in our knowledge, that we might grow in our trust, and that we might grow in our experience of Jesus Christ. And the way we're doing that is by looking at four different uh, birth announcements highlighted with these these dramas that give us important information about who this child truly is. Last week, we looked at the angel's announcement to Joseph. We focused on the fact that this child was and is Emmanuel, God with us, that He is the Son of God. This week, we're going to focus on the fact that this child became uh, the Son of Mary. God as one of us. And so we're going to look at, we're going to begin by looking at the angel's announcement to Mary. This announcement is found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 26. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, let's just walk through it. Just prior to this, in Luke's Gospel, he's described Mary's visit. She's just come back from visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who's also miraculously pregnant, with John the Baptist. And so Luke begins, verse 26, with, in the sixth month, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke records the name of the angel uh, Gabriel. Gabriel is sent to Mary, a virgin, who is betrothed, as we talked about last week, legally bound to this man named Joseph. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary is greatly troubled. And that word greatly means uh greatly. She's She's... She's a little stressed by this appearance of this angel. Angel sightings were not a common occurrence in her day any more than they are in our day. At least angels that we know are angels. We might entertain angels unaware, right? Can you imagine how you'd feel if an angel walked up or flew in or just appeared before you? Like Mary, you would probably be very afraid. That seems to be the common occurrence. Angels appear, people are afraid. Luke says that Gabriel's words, that Mary has found favor, or, or that word could, could mean grace with God, troubled and confused her. She's thinking, What is this angel doing here? And what's he saying to me? But Gabriel assures her not to be afraid. Easy for him to say, he's an angel. And then he comes, and then comes the announcement. He says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the lord god will give to him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end so from this announcement we learn a great deal really about this child gabriel has given us really the outline for every message that i'm doing in this four week sermon series four week series of advent First, that the child's name will be Jesus, or Yeshua, Jehovah is salvation. He will be a Savior. This is what we're going to focus on next week. Second, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we focused on last week. And third, He will be given the throne of David and will reign forever. He will be an eternal King. This is what we'll focus on in two weeks, in, the final, in our final Advent Message on the 24th. So, in this announcement to Mary, the angel is given this great summary of who this child is a savior, a king, a God Himself. Now, I'm not so sure that these words brought, uh, word brought more or less uh, uh, fear to Mary, but they certainly added to her confusion. In verse 34, we read, And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? How can I be uh, the mother of anyone? I haven't been with a man. I'm a virgin. And so Gabriel explains how this can be. And it's this explanation that we're going to focus on today. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, this is a similar announcement Uh, that the angel gave to Joseph that we saw last week. This is the description of this miraculous conception. Gabriel says that there will be a union between God and Mary, between God's Spirit and human flesh. And the product of this union will be holy. He will be the Son of God. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. He was and will be uh, divine. But he, He will also be a child. A baby, born to Mary. He will be the babe, the son of Mary. He's not only the eternal God with us, but He will become God as one of us. This child will be a a human being. And that's the story of Christmas. This is the story of Christmas. Uh, This is the story of the incarnation. God with us, and God as one of us. The divine and the human now, last week we focused on the divinity of Christ. And we'll touch on that. They, they have to be taken together. But this week we're going to focus on the humanity of Christ. If you want to turn in your Bibles now from, from Luke over to Philippians chapter 2, in verse 7 of chapter 2, we find, I, I believe, one of the best descriptions of Christ's humanity. But let's begin, let's back up from verse uh, 7 to verse 5 and sort of get the context. And this will be helpful for. For us as we seek to apply this, apply these theological truths to our lives. Paul writes, "Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Paul's about to describe. Take my word for it. If you don't know, he's about to describe this amazing theological truth—the truth of 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 uh, really undescribable truth in many ways of God becoming man. We call that the the incarnation. But before he gives the description, he says this: "There's something about Jesus's mind that we need to that we've been given, and we need to have or or keep in our minds." So what follows isn't just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It isn't just just. It is, but it isn't just great and deep and important theological truth. It's truth that I believe is all all theological truth should be. It's truth that should impact the way we live. It should impact our lives. And then Paul goes on to describe God becoming man, who though he was in the form of God, this is what we looked at last week, Jesus was in the form of God. His nature, his essence was always and is always eternally God. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of, the servant, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Again, the heart of the Christmas story right here. This is the behind-the-scenes look. This is what's going on. This is what happens as, a, as the angel describes the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is what's happening. This is a description of God becoming one of us. And it, and it breaks down nicely uh, in three parts, you know. Sermons are supposed to have three points. I don't don't always stick to that, but this time, what a break for me. Three points here by Paul. First, uh, in God becoming one of us, uh, he, Jesus, emptied himself, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, we need to be careful here. This doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of being God. He didn't stop being God. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He didn't throw away his divinity and take on humanity. As we saw last week, the man Jesus, while he was here on earth, claimed to be fully God. The great I am, as the song said. His essence, his nature, literally is God. And that never changed. And it never does change. So what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? It means... But it says here though he was in the form of God he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped His nature was his nature was that of God totally equal with God his essence is God but he didn't hold on to that he didn't grasp at that to be equal. Instead, in humility, he emptied himself. It seems that Paul means that Jesus emptied himself of his divine rights as God. To become one of us, he didn't hold on to the rights, the advantages, the privileges, and they are many, of being God. Let's think about this for a minute. Maybe a little group participation here. What are some of the attributes of God? If I were to say, uh, God is fill in the blank. What, what are some of the things you would say? God is all-knowing, holy, good, love. Keep it going. Perfect, merciful, unchanging, eternal, just, all-powerful. Righteous. Any, any, any others? I mean, there's lots of them. Hope. Uh, he gives hope. Merciful. And so what Paul seems to be saying, so have those things in mind, and, and more, there are more. Paul seems to be saying is that Jesus emptying himself of these Attributes. He never stopped having these attributes. He never stopped being fully God. See, and, and some of those attributes, if you notice, some of them we sort of have, right? We, I mean, God is love and we love. Jesus emptied himself of his divine, the divine attributes. He never stopped having them. He never stopped being fully God. But to become one of us, he gave up exercising these divine rights, these divine attributes. God is omnipresent. Jesus gave up being everywhere at once. God is all-knowing. Jesus gave up the right to know everything at all times. Last week, I watched an old uh, old movie. I think it was the 40s. I tend to be focusing on those movies nowadays. They seem to be... a. a... What are you saying? Right. They seem to just be better. I don't know. The movie was called Sullivan's Travels, uh, and it illustrates this a little bit. It's about a rich filmmaker who wanted to make a movie about the struggles of the poor. He's realized he's never experienced what it's like to be poor. He grew up in prep schools, and he just has always been well off. So he takes off his expensive suit. He, he leaves his mansion and his butler and his, his limo driver. He puts on some uh, beat-up old clothes, And he sets out on a journey with with 10 cents in his pocket. Now he still has millions of dollars in the bank and a mansion and a, a limo. He's still a rich man. But he's emptied himself of his right, his ability to use his money so that he could become one of the poor. And this doesn't illustrate it fully, but it sort of gives us a picture of what Jesus did, but on an infinitely grander scale. Think about what He emptied Himself of, those things we listed. He gave up His right to exercise His divine authority. We didn't say that. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He gave up His right to exercise that authority independent of His Father. Again, He never gave up the equality with the Father. In in John 10.30, I think we looked at this last week, He says, I and the Father are one. But in John 5:30, he also said, I do, "I do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me." And in John 6:38 he said, "For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me." Jesus fully and perfectly, every time submitted to the will of his Father. And we think, well, that was a piece of cake. He was Jesus. He was God. He was perfect. But it wasn't always easy, and we have at least one illustration of this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that he was betrayed and arrested, as he's praying, as he's sweating drops, the Scripture says, of blood, because of the pressure and the stress that he's about to face, and he knows it's coming, of the cross, of the pressure, of of taking on our sins... He says, he prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup, the cross, pass from me. Yet he followed each request. He he prayed this three times, by the way. He followed each time with the submissive words, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As a man, Jesus gave up his independent divine authority and, and submitted totally to the will of the father. Jesus also gave up the right to independently exercise His divine power. He didn't stop being omniscient or or omnipresent or omnipotent or any other divine attribute. He was always fully God, but He willingly chose not to exercise these attributes independent from God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So you might ask, if Jesus gave up the right to exercise His divine power, then how did He perform all the miracles He did? How did He heal the sick? How did He feed the 5,000? How did He walk on water? Well, Jesus performed miracles in the same way that others, uh, Moses and Elijah and the apostles did. He did it through the power of the Holy Spirit working through Him. Just one example. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, But if it is by the power... But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says that he cast out demons not by his own independent power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus emptied himself. He gave up his right to exercise his divine authority and power independent of God the Father. He submitted to the will of the Father, and he accomplished the purposes of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is so very important and exciting and uh, applicable to us. There's clear application here. Remember that Paul, in his writings, no, step back to verse 5 in Philippians chapter 2. Why is he writing this, at least in part? That we might have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. These great theological truths about a God becoming man affect how we live? How do we apply these to our lives? How do we humbly empty ourselves? We can't empty ourselves of our divinity because, uh, shocking though it might seem, we don't have any. We are not God. If you get anything out of this message, get that. You are not God. But we can empty ourselves. We can give up our rights. We can empty ourselves of so much of our selfish ambitions and desires of, of our, of our uh, desire to be what we want to be. And fully submit to the will of the Father. And how do we do that? Again, Jesus is our example. He didn't do it with His divine power. He didn't do it uh, because He had emptied Himself of that. He did it through the power of the Spirit. And this same Spirit, praise the Lord, is available to you and to me. When we're filled with the Spirit, we have the power to overcome the sin in our lives. The Spirit convicts and the Spirit helps. We have the power to submit to the will of the Father. We have the power to empty ourselves of our plans and our purposes. We can't do this on our own, no possible way. But when we're filled with the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit that God has given us, we can do these things. We have the power to submit to the will of the Father and live the life that God has called us to live, just like Jesus did. So first, for Jesus to become one of us, He emptied Himself, and we too can empty ourselves that we might do as God has called us to do. And second, Jesus took the form of a servant who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This further describes, uh, I think, what it is meant by uh, Jesus emptying himself. Jesus was fully God. He was in the form of God. He was by nature the Lord of the universe. but, But just as certainly... And fully, he existed in the form of man. He at a point in time which we celebrate every December 25th. He emptied himself by taking the form of a, a servant. That word form is the same word used where Paul says he was in the form of God. Remember that word means nature or essence. Jesus always had the nature of God, but he took on the nature of a servant. That word servant is the Greek, maybe you've heard it, doulos. It means to be a slave, and it, and it refers to both voluntary or involuntary slavery. In Jesus' case, the, the slavery was voluntary. He chose, for our sake and for God's glory, to become one of us, to take the form of a servant. In Jesus' time, a slave owned nothing, not even the clothes on his back, everything he had including his life, belonged to his master. And Jesus' master was his Father in heaven. Jesus came to do his Father's will and serve the needs of others in his Father's name. He completely waived his rights as the Son of God and became a a servant. On many occasions, Jesus identified himself as, as the Son of Man. He also identified himself, or others identified him as the Son of God. And so this, this term, Son of Man, uh, isn't a denial of his deity, but it's a proclamation of his humanity. It was also a term that the Jews associated with their coming Messiah. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to, ser- not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, even while identifying himself with this uh, great anticipated Messiah, makes it clear that he came to serve. He came to make the ultimate service, uh, a sacrifice of his life, of giving his life as a ransom for many. By saving us from our sin and providing us with salvation, Jesus served more completely, more uh, totally than any other servant who's ever lived. He served in a way that only he could his disciples however then and now that's 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 his his original 12 or Judas get him out 11 and and on to us now all of his disciples cannot serve in the way he did we cannot die for the sins of others but his disciples are still called to follow Jesus example of service Jesus said in in John chapter 13 verses 14 and 15 that if If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, uh, foot washing was the task given to the lowest of servants. Jesus is saying, if I have served you in this low and humble way, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You also ought to serve one another in low and humble ways. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus took the form of the servant. He served his Father in heaven by giving his service, by serving others. And he calls us to the same kind of service. Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In Christ we're free. But so often we, uh, we view that freedom means you're free to do whatever your flesh wants to do. But Paul says, in Christ we're free from our flesh, from our selfish desires. And therefore, like Christ, we are free to love and serve one another. Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He gave up his divine rights. And he took the form of a servant. Now these two have to go together. They, they follow one for another. To take the form of the servant, you must first give up your rights. If Jesus would have held on to his rights as God, he, he, he never could have become a servant. He never could have become human. He never could have gone to the cross. But Jesus willingly gave up his rights. And, and when he calls us to serve one another, he calls us to empty ourselves as well. To give up our rights. A servant does not claim his rights. He gives them up. Ask yourself this question. What rights am I holding on to that are keeping me from serving God and serving others? I know for myself, I I often want to hold on to what I feel. This is is my right. I'm an American. I have these rights. The right to a good night's sleep, which I didn't get last night, so I'm feeling a little woozy up here. Uh, The right to eat what I want to eat. The right to be around people I like. The right to spend my money the way I want to. The right to my free time. And so many more. We could just go on and on of the rights that we somehow believe are ours. And and when I hold on to my rights, it is impossible to serve God or others. Why? Because I'm too busy serving myself. Paul says, to be like Jesus, we must empty ourselves of our rights and become servants to God and others. So we've seen uh, that to become one of us, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And again, that's back to us. The whole premise of this is we're to have this kind of same thinking that, that caused Jesus to do this in our mind. And finally, Jesus' third point, Jesus was born in the likeness of men, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what took place that first Christmas. Jesus Christ came into our world, born in the likeness of men. And that word likeness refers to that which is made to be like something else, not just in appearance, but in reality. Jesus was not just some reasonable copy of a man. He became exactly like all other human beings. He had all the attributes of humanity. In Philippians uh, 2.8, which just follows right after 7, huh, amazing, it says, and being found in, the, in, in human form. That word form, again, is the same word in verse 6. And verse 7, he was in, in 6, he was in the form of God. 7, the form of the servant. 8, the form, he was found in the, being found in the human form. The form, the nature of Jesus was that of, of God and man. Christmas is God being born in the likeness of men. Jesus exists as one person with two natures, a human nature. He's, he's unique, don't get me wrong. He's different from all else because he has these two natures. Uh, but, but one of them is a human nature and the other is a divine nature. And for those who are interested Uh, Theologians call this the the hypostatic union. The English adjective hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which is found in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word, nature, hypostasis. Both the Father and the Son are the same. Same nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is not part God and part man. Jesus isn't 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God in the form of God. I and the Father are one and 100% man, found in human form, born in the likeness of men. The Son exists from eternity past to eternity future as God. And at the Incarnation, at that point in time that Jesus emptied himself, he took on the form of servant of a servant and was born in the likeness of men, the, the likeness of men, which included all of our frailties and limitations and problems and suffering and this too is so important for us to understand sometimes we don 't grasp the significance of Jesus Christ being one hundred percent human, that Jesus experienced Thirty-three years of life on this earth as a man, and he continues in that state. Just so we're clear, Jesus continues. He didn't uh, once he once he went to the cross or once he ascended to heaven. He didn't drop off his human nature. He continues throughout all eternity in this dual nature. Luke two fifty-two says, as a man. As a child, think about the baby in the the manger uh, and then him growing up, that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus developed as a person. He became hungry and thirsty. He suffered pain. He felt sadness. Uh, Jesus wept. He became tired and weak. He needed sleep. Why did he do this? Hebrews 2.14 answers that question this way. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Let's think about that. Jesus, just like our, 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 our children... We have children, and they're born. They share our flesh and blood. Jesus partook. Jesus took on the flesh and blood, born in the likeness of men. Why? That through his death on the cross, he might destroy Satan, who has the power of death. It was because of Jesus, it was because Jesus was one of us, that he could die, that he could be a sacrifice for us. And there's more, because Jesus was born in our likeness. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus uh, Jesus became one of us, therefore he can sympathize with us. Jesus is the perfect high priest. He can sympathize with our weakness, not because he fell to sin, as we do, but because he was tempted as we are. But unlike us, he endured temptation. Think about it. He endured temptation to the very end. We at some point, all of us, give in. We sin, but Jesus was without sin. He never gave in to temptation. Romans eight three says, Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he condemned sin in the flesh. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Therefore, he was subject to temptations of the flesh. And he was subject uh, because he had physical human flesh. He was subject to physical death. Death of the flesh. But because he overcame the temptations of the flesh, though tempted, he never sinned. And because uh, because he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, he condemned sin in the flesh. He... In the flesh, as a human being, defeated sin and death and Satan. As one of us, he defeated sin. Again, as the writer of Hebrews explains, chapter 2, verse 7, therefore, he had therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was made like his brothers, like, like you and, and like me. In every respect, he was born in the likeness of men that he might become our high priest. That he might become one of us, that he might be our high priest, that he might make propitiation, atonement, that he might be able to be our sacrifice. If he wasn't one of us, he couldn't be a sacrifice for us. Philippians 2.8, the full verse makes it clear. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, By being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was found in human form. He humbled himself and he went to the cross to die for our sins. And our response, Paul says again, back to verse 5. We'll read the whole thing again, 5-7. to Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We are called to have the mind of Christ, to follow the example of of God who became man. We are called to empty ourselves, to give up our rights as Jesus did. We are called to take the form of a servant as Jesus did. We are called to live a life of humility before God and others as Jesus did. And you might ask, "How the heck can I do that? How is that possible? How can I be like Jesus? He was God as, uh, as, He was God as one of us, and I am just a, a one of us. But if you're in Christ, if you've trusted and given your life to Christ, then you are no longer just one of us, one of fallen humanity. You're united with Christ. You're you're counted righteous in Christ. All that stuff that we've been doing in Romans comes right here. You're righteous. You've been counted righteous in Christ. And and it's in submission to Christ that we're supplied with all we need for this life and for godliness. As I close this morning, I I just want us to see the beauty of trusting in Christ. I want us to see what he offers. Last week, we focused on his divinity. And and because he's divine, because he's God, there should absolutely be no freaking choice whether we follow him. He created you. You have no option but to follow him. And that's harsh, and it's true, but he didn't stop there. He could have just said, I'm God. Knock it off, you bunch of knuckleheads. But he did, in some ways, the opposite. He became one of us. And so we can follow God, we should follow God because He's divine, but we can also uh, be motivated because He didn't hold on to that divinity, He became one of us and sacrificed Himself for us. Can you imagine? And now I want to bring those two together and rejoice in how His divinity and humanity alone provides everything we need for this life and beyond. Think about it. Because Jesus is God, He's all-powerful. And He cannot be defeated. Believers, those who trust in Him are safe and can never perish. We have security. Can't wait for Romans 8. Verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can have confidence that we will, we, that He will empower us for every task that He commands us to do. God will not give us uh, a task, a command that He will not empower us to do. As the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, after the announcement, he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And it's God who makes it possible for us to empty ourselves, to give up our rights, and to serve others. So those are just the sum of the ramifications of Jesus being God. And, and now what about the ramifications of Jesus being human? Because Jesus is human, He's experienced the same things we do. He can identify with us more intimately. He can come to our aid as our sympathetic high priest. When we reach our limits, when we're feeling our human weakness, we can go to Him and say, you know what it's like to be human. We can relate to Him. He's not far off. He's involved. He got involved. He came. He became one of us. We cannot complain that God does not know what we're going through. He experienced it firsthand. And finally, because Jesus is the perfect God-man, He's the only one who could and did save us from our sin. We've touched on that. We touch on that every week. This is the message of the Gospel. He is our hope. For salvation, And that's what we'll look at maybe in depth next week. We've seen God with us last week. We've seen God as one of us this week. And next week we'll see God for us. That God is for us. God is for you. That God saves us. And I'd encourage you, if, if, there, if there are those in your life who, who don't know who this child is, who don't know Jesus Christ, who don't know that Jesus Christ came to save them From their sins next Sunday would be a perfect opportunity take that card in your bulletin and just just give it out invite someone and then pray just invite just invite them and pray that they would they would join you here today and, and just hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and today as we conclude I would I would encourage all of us to respond to Jesus this this perfect God man in the same way Mary responded at the at the end of this section of the end of this announcement she responds to the angel who announced Christ's birth in Luke chapter 1 verse 38 let's take this with us and Mary said behold i am the servant of i mean the angel has told her i'm sorry the angel has told her some some crazy stuff some stuff that's never been said before and asked her to believe and to obey, and she says, "Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word." If we could just, as we read the Word of God, as we hear from God, that we could say, "Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word." Let's pray, Lord God, thank you for this uh, this day. Thank you for your incarnation, your coming, your you're becoming one of us. Lord, that's so profound. You gave up so much. You gave up your, your rights to become one of us, Lord. You took on our form, our nature, and you, you carry that throughout all eternity. I don't know what that, that means or what that's like fully, Lord, but you sacrificed for us. More than just your life, you sacrificed in becoming one of us, Lord. And I just thank you for that. And I pray for myself, I pray for each person here that, that we would have your mind, a mind that wasn't willing to sacrifice, a mind that wasn't willing to give up, that was willing to give up your rights, Lord, that we would do the same. Lord, that we would be servants as you were a servant, and that we would do according to to your word. In Christ's name, amen.